Rainbow Valley is a monthly podcast where your host Scott takes a look at key events and personalities that shaped one of the most influential, vibrant, tumultuous and swinging decades in history. Join us as we celebrate the 1960s with the stories surrounding the music and news events of the decade that shook the world. nineteen sixty four and the world was still reeling from the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Racial tensions continued in the southern states of the USA, and tension was also rising as the conflict in Vietnam escalated. But it was also the year of the Tokyo Olympics, the Blue Streak, Francis Chichester, and Radio Caroline. There was music from not only the Fab Four but Dusty, Manfred Mann and the Kinks. And on TV we were introduced to a brand new TV channel and saw a surge in the popularity of Steptoe and the Avengers, and a phenomenon known as Dalek Mania. Ladies and gentlemen, Rainbow Valley is proud to present the story of the hits and the headlines of 1964. I'm the resurrector, I'm the savior of the boxing world. If it wasn't for me, the game would be dead. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. Some people are on the fence, they think it's all over. It is now, it's four. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wednesday. January the 1st, 1964, the year would start with a piece of British television history. The birth of the world's longest-running weekly music show. At 6.35pm, Top of the Pops would hit the air. Produced in the studio on Dickinson Road in Rush Hill, Manchester, this first show was presented by Jimmy Savile live from the Manchester studio, with a brief link to Alan Freeman in London to preview the following week's programme. First act to appear on the show, 
Dusty Springfield singing I Only Want to Be With You. Dusty was followed by the Rolling Stones and I Want to Be Your Man, the Dave Clark Five singing Glad All Over and the Hollies with Stay. Also appearing, the swinging blue jeans with a hippie hippie shake and that week's number one, the Beatles performing I Want to Hold Your Hand. Johnny Stewart devised the rules which governed how the show would operate. The programme would always end with the number one record, which was the only record that could appear in consecutive weeks. The show would include the highest new entry, and if not featured in the previous week, the highest climber on the charts. It would also omit any song going down in the chart. Tracks could be featured in consecutive weeks in different formats. For example, if a song was played over the chart countdown or the closing credits, then it was acceptable for the act to appear in the studio the following week. Yeah, 
feel happy inside It's such a feeling Also on the 1st of January this year, the shock announcement in Cyprus by Archbishop Makarios that he'd be repealing treaties made with Greece, Turkey and the United Kingdom. Barry Goldwater announced his candidacy for the presidency on the 3rd and on the 5th, London's first automatic ticket collecting machine was installed on the underground. Topping the charts for two weeks, knocking the Beatles off the number one position, Dave Clark 5 and Glad All Over. Also this month in Zanzibar, nationalists overthrew the Sultan's regime and proclaimed a People's Republic. 200 people died in Calcutta during the Hindu-Muslim riots, and in London, the trial of the great train robbers began.
Also in January this year, UK government figures showed that the average weekly wage was £16.14 and 11. Cecil King announced that he was planning to relaunch the Daily Herald newspaper as The Sun. And in South Vietnam, a military coup overthrew the junta regime of Major Van Min. The space race continued with the launch of Echo C, the first US Soviet space project, as well as the launch of the massive Saturn rocket, which, with a payload of 10 tonnes, was the heaviest so far. The most popular TV show in Britain this month, Steptoe and Son. The show had its roots in a 1962 episode of Gorton and Simpson's Comedy Playhouse. Gorton and Simpson's association with the comedian Tony Hancock, for whom they'd written Hancock's Half Hour, had ended, and they had agreed to a proposal from the BBC to write a series of ten comedy shows. The fourth in the series, The Offer, was born both out of writer's block and budgetary constraints. Earlier shows in the series had cost more than expected, so the writers decided to write a two-hander set in one room. The idea of two brothers was considered, but father and son seemed to work best. Gorton and Simpson were not aiming to make a pilot for a series, having worked for seven years with Hancock. However, Tom Sloan, the BBC's head of comedy, told them during rehearsals that the offer was a definite series pilot. He saw the Steptoe idea had potential, as did the audience of that edition of Comedy Playhouse. Gorton and Simpson were reportedly overwhelmed by this reaction, and the first of what became eight series was commissioned, the first four of which were transmitted between 1962 and 1965. The last four series were broadcast between 1970 and 1974 in colour. At the peak of the series' popularity, it received viewing figures of some 28 million viewers per episode. In addition, the early 1970s saw two feature films and two 46-minute Christmas specials. In the first three months of 1964, the Beatles held the number one position on the US Billboard chart for 14 weeks with three separate singles. She Loves You, Can't Buy Me Love and I Wanna Hold Your Hand. On February 8th, the Fab Four flew into Kennedy Airport in New York to incredible scenes as thousands of American teenagers screamed and fainted on their arrival, heralding the start of the British invasion.
doubts about the Beatles' reception in America were dispelled the moment they touched down. New Yorkers turned out in force, and making allowance for an American accent, the screams might have been genuine Merseyside. George, John, Paul and Ringo had found a new world to conquer. Some press conference. For half an hour, there was so much din you couldn't tell a word. It was a matter of everybody being patient, hoping it would begin eventually. Anyway, we wrote up. No! <laughs> Sorry. Next question. No, we need money first. <laughs> How much money do you expect to take out of this country? Nothing. Half a crown, two dollars. Sorry, I know they can tell us what they think they have. How many are bald if you have to wear those things? All of us. I'm bald. You're bald? Oh, we're all bald. Don't tell anyone, please. I'm deaf and dumb, too. You're deaf and dumb, Aren't you afraid of what the American Barbers Association is going to think of you? Well, we've run quicker than the English ones. We'll have a go in. You hope to get a haircut at all? No. Nope. No. 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 Thanks. I had one yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> That's no lie. That's true. You know, I think he missed. No. No, he didn't. No. You should have seen him the day before. The crowds had waited outside to cheer them all the way to the hotel. No arguing about it. The Beatles are the top pop music phenomenon of the century. The Beatles again. May I point out that they'll be on our show, as I told our audience, for the next two Sundays. Next Sunday from Doville Hotel in the Miami Beach show starring Hollywood's exciting Mitzi Gaynor. So, ladies and gentlemen, Yeah. 
Also in February 1964, the US spacecraft Ranger 6 crashed onto the surface of the moon, but failed to send back any pictures. Britain and France agreed to build a channel tunnel costing £160 million, and in London, a magistrate declared that the novel Fanny Hill was obscene and ordered the confiscation of all copies of the book. Peter Sellers married actress Britt Eklund on the 19th of this month, £10 banknotes were issued for the first time since World War II, and the government announced plans for a fleet of five Polaris submarines. Troubles in Cyprus escalated this month when on the 12th, 20 Turks and one Greek Cypriot were killed in fighting as the hostilities between the two communities worsened. Turkish Cypriots were reported to be mounting machine guns on high buildings in Limassol to fire on the Greek quarter of the city. Throughout the day, British troops did their best to arrange a ceasefire but with limited success. Greek Cypriot irregulars occupied several streets whilst many Turks barricaded themselves into their homes. Other Turks planted plastic booby trap bombs on roads, and it was believed that several British families were trapped in parts of the city. The crisis in Cyprus worsened after Turkish Prime Minister Mr Inonu walked out of the conference on the troubles held in London. He demanded United Nations intervention to secure the rights of the Turkish Cypriots. The US Embassy was bombed and more British troops were flown in. Soviet President Nikita Khrushchev protested vehemently, accusing the West of attempting to occupy the island through the use of NATO armed forces. Knowing I love you so. 
March 1964, an eventful news month in the USA. On the 7th, in Los Angeles, three men were sentenced after having been found guilty of kidnapping Frank Sinatra's son. Frank Sinatra Jr. was kidnapped at the age of 19 on December 8, 1963, from room 417 at Harrah's Lake Tahoe. He was released two days later after his father paid the $240,000 ransom demanded by the kidnappers, equivalent to over $2 million today. Barry Keenan, Johnny Irwin and Joe Amsler were soon captured, prosecuted for kidnapping, convicted and sentenced to long prison terms, of which they served only small portions. Mastermind Keenan was later adjudged to have been legally insane at the time of the crime, and hence not legally responsible for his actions. A rumour at the time was that Frank Sr. arranged this in an attempt to gain publicity for his son's fledgling singing career, but this was proven to be false. The kidnappers demanded that all communication be conducted by payphone. During these conversations, Frank Sr. became concerned he'd not have enough coins, which prompted him to carry 10 dimes with him at all times for the rest of his life. He was even buried with 10 dimes in his pocket. following day, the 8th of March, Malcolm X announced that he'd be splitting from the black Muslim movement and forming his own group. And on the 12th, union boss Jimmy Hoffa was sentenced to eight years in jail for jury fixing. In the UK, Queen Elizabeth gave birth to her third son Edward on the 12th of March, and first reports of mods fighting rockers on the beach in Clacton emerged on the 30th, a trend that would continue throughout this particular summer. March 30th, rain, fog and a 250 foot lava hump on the shoulder of Mount Vesuvius were cited as factors 
in the crash of an Alitalia Viscount turboprop airliner. All 45 persons aboard were killed. Eight Americans were passengers on the plane which crashed into the lower slope of Vesuvius, the still active volcano. The Viscount apparently caught the crest of Cardo, the crest of the thistle, which juts out on the side of the mountain, broke in two and burst into flames. The wreckage and the bodies were scattered over an area 400 yards in diameter. Search teams said the plane would have cleared the crest if it had been flying only 100 feet higher. Riding at anchor off Harwich and safely outside the three-mile limit, the innocent-looking ex-ferryboat Caroline is causing quite a stir in official circles. She's a floating broadcasting station, hoping to make a big thing out of commercial radio and waiting for the advertisements to roll in. I'm no pirate, insists Captain Mackay, even if the radio crew are. No danger to his ship so far. Generators supply power for the wireless transmitter. Caroline Radio is on the air 12 hours a day, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Between those hours, they think, there's a public large enough to attract local advertising revenue. Crew technicians have comfortable off-duty quarters, and to all indications, Caroline is a happy ship. The radio company believe it's all perfectly deep. In the ship's studio, they broadcast with no more concern than if it were all in broadcasting house.
The situation in Cyprus intensified in March 1964 following the arrival of a United Nations force comprising soldiers from Great Britain, Finland, Canada, Sweden and Ireland. Following on from their not-so-secret romance during the filming of Cleopatra, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor were married for the first time on March the 15th. And on March the 14th, the jury at the trial of Jack Ruby, the killer of Lee Harvey Oswald, the man accused of President Kennedy's assassination, found him guilty of murder with malice and assessed his punishment as that of death. Historic 23 days end in a Dallas courtroom as Jack Ruby is taken in to hear the verdict in his trial for the murder of Lee Harvey Oswald, accused assassin of President Kennedy. The charge had been murder with malice, the defense insanity. The ruling that barred all cameras from the courtroom is lifted as Judge Joe B. Brown prepares to hear from the jury their decision of the case. The jurors had heard the final summations in the early morning hours and they had deliberated for a little over two hours before returning to the jury box. Now, the News of the Day cameraman records the judge's words in the tense final moments of a drama that began in national tragedy last November. Ladies and gentlemen, you have reached a verdict. May I have it, Sheriff, please? The jury finds the defendant guilty of murder with malice as charged in the indictment and assess his punishment at death. Signed, Max E. Causey Foreman. So say you all. Is that your unanimous verdict? Will all of you whose verdict that is please hold up your right hands? All right, Sheriff, he's your prisoner. Keep your seats, please. There'll be no moving out. Don't let anybody out of corner. As Ruby is led away, the shouts of Chief Defense Counsel Melvin Belli are still heard above the excited hubbub that sweeps the courtroom. The prisoner is led back to the cell where he will be held until the final disposition of his appeal. Reporters hear a distraught and emotional attorney Belli reiterate his determination to appeal the verdict. This must be made to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. Further appeals that could drag on for two years or so could be made as high as the United States Supreme Court. But the first crucial judgment has been rendered against Jack Ruby. Your baby doesn't love you Days before the end Whisper secrets to the wind Your baby won't be Political unrest around the world was the theme of April 1964. In Moscow, former Foreign Minister Molotov, he of the Molotov cocktail fame, was expelled from the Communist Party. In Laos, right-wing army officers ousted Prince Fumar's neutralist government from power. And in Yemen, the Egyptian leader, Colonel Nasser, 
vowed to expel the UK from all parts of the Arab world. It's over. It your heart in two. To know she's been untrue. But oh, what will you do when she says to you, there's someone new we're through. We're through. It's In Rhodesia, Ian Smith ousted Winston Field from power after it became apparent that Field was dithering over the subject of independence. Field had spoke of serious disagreements between himself and his party, and so Smith declared that he would seek to achieve a negotiated independence, although adding that there may be some circumstances which might drive the government into doing something else. In essence, Ian Smith stated that he was prepared to go for a unilateral declaration of independence if the British government continued to insist on the African majority being brought fully into the electoral process. Previously, Smith had insisted that a unilateral declaration of independence would be nothing short of a three-day wonder. But you'll see lonely sunsets after all In London, there were 30 arrests after fighting broke out between mods and rockers, this time away from the seaside coastal resorts. Also in London, the Labour Party won the first elections to the Greater London Council, and 12 members of the Great Train Robbery Gang were sentenced to a total of 307 years in jail. And in the budget, the price of a pint of beer rose to just over two shillings, and a packet of cigarettes up to four and ten for twenty. The Cold War spy network would of course be big news throughout the 60s, and April this year would be no exception. On the 22nd of this month, Greville Wynne, the British businessman who had been jailed as a spy in Moscow, was freed as part of a spy swap with the Russians. Wynne was exchanged at a Berlin border checkpoint for Gordon Lonsdale, the KGB spymaster arrested in London in 1961 and sentenced to 25 years for his part in the Portland spy ring. Greville Wynne, who had been sentenced to eight years, had lost nearly three stones in weight during his 17 months in prison, and had previously stood trial with Colonel Oleg Penkovsky, who was later shot for passing secrets to the West. Here inside, 
And on April the 21st, BBC Two was launched. Its first programme, Play School. A house with a door. Windows. One, two, three, four. Ready to play. What's the day? It's Monday. This, however, was not supposed to be the first programme broadcast on the brand new channel. Technical thoughts the night before had prevented its grand opening, leaving PlaySchool as the first show broadcast the day after. The first episode went out on the morning of April the 21st with its target audience of under fives totally unaware of its double first status. When PlaySchool started, it stood alone on BBC2 at 11am, and the channel then went off the air till the evening. Producer Joy Whitby introduced the programme in the Radio Times, saying it will use all the advantages of television to do the job of a nursery school in its own exciting way. In Play School, the world outside the studio was glimpsed through the magic windows. Every day the viewers were invited to guess whether this would be through the square, the round or the arch window. And the first presenters were Virginia Stride and Gordon Rollings. Presenters over the years included Brian Kent, Tony Arthur, Judy Stevens, Floella Benjamin and Johnny Ball. Carol Shell was the longest serving presenter, staying with the programme for 22 years. They were joined by the toys Humpty, Jemima, Hamble, Big and Little Ted. Hamble was replaced by Poppy in the final two years of the programme, which finished in 1988, after more than 5,000 episodes. May 1964, in Aden, extra UK troops were flown in after reports of the decapitation of two British soldiers by Yemenese rebels. The Pulitzer Committee in New York decided that there was no fiction, music or drama worthy of an award this year. Labour made big gains in the local elections, and in seaside towns across the UK on the Whitsun Bank holiday... and scores of other places in Britain congratulated themselves that this was the outstanding bank holiday weekend for several years. Hot without being sweltering, so that millions were able to feel they hadn't a care in the world. There was just one thing casting a slight cloud over Clacton, the possibility that the mods and rockers might once again descend on the town. Any who did sensed that the police would be more than ready for them. Clacton had no intention of being a battleground again. It really has come to something when people can't take a short holiday without the threat of long-haired youngsters with knives indulging in an orgy of hooliganism. 
Fortunately, the kiddies knew nothing about it and had a wonderful time. Of course, there always was more than a hint of violence in Punch and Judy, but nobody ever got hurt. If Brighton did not do record holiday business, it must have been very close to it. That unfailing recipe, sun, sea and the beach, was mixed to perfection. Brighton did not go scot-free. Before the holiday was over, 76 mods and rockers were arrested. For the rest, it was pretty well perfect. The seaside place that dominated the headlines this time was Margate. Rumour of invasion by undesirables was borne out. There they were on the beach, waiting apparently for somebody to start something. That suited the police. They said that the would-be troublemakers were well under observation so long as they stayed there. Reinforcements to the ranks of law and order seemed more than enough to cope with anything that might happen. On the whole, they were, though they could not completely prevent it. than 50 were arrested in Margate, where a magistrate fined them a total of nearly 2,000 pounds. June 1964 would see the creation of the Palestine Liberation Organisation. The PLO emerged in response to various compounding events that took place in the Middle East. In 1948, Israel became an independent state which resulted in more than 750,000 Palestinians fleeing their homeland. The subsequent 1948 war set the stage for years of tension and violence between Arabs and Israelis. Around this time, Palestinians were spread out among several countries, lacked formal leadership and weren't well organised. This limited their political influence and presence. During the Arab League summit mid-1964, Palestinians came together to create one central organisation, the PLO. The PLO's Palestine National Council was first comprised of Palestinian civilians and helped define the group's goals, which included the destruction of Israel. The organisation's first chairman was Ahmed Shugairi.
of the Blue Streak Rocket is one of both triumph and missed opportunity. First designed as a ballistic missile, then adapted to launch satellites, Blue Streak was Britain's contribution to the space race. First launched in the summer of 1964 at the Woomera test site in South Australia, Blue Streak performed as planned for 11 successful launches. Few rockets achieved such a clean record during the early stages of development, in fact, Blue Streak had a comparable success rate to the famous Saturn V rocket. Yet, Blue Streak never became such a household name. Politics and economics conspired against Blue Streak, and the program was cancelled in 1971. June 8th, the Profumo affair was still not out of the public eye as Christine Keeler was released from prison and three days later on the 11th, Martin Luther King was placed in prison for trying to force integration of a Florida restaurant. He was arrested in St Augustine along with fellow civil rights leader Ralph Abernathy when the two men requested service at a segregated restaurant. King was subsequently moved to the Duval County Jail where he reportedly said to one African-American employee Hello sister, I've been in 15 jails but this is the first time that I've been treated like a hog. King was eventually released but he was arrested at least twice more that same month during his stay in the town. The protests King and the SCLC helped to organise were not in vain however. The episode helped galvanise support for the historic Civil Rights Act of 1964 which was before Congress at that moment in time and was signed into law by President Johnson on July the 2nd. But before that historic occasion, on the 23rd of June, three civil rights workers were reported missing after being arrested by Mississippi police. On June the 21st, three young civil rights workers, a 21-year-old black Mississippian James Cheney, and two white New Yorkers, Andrew Goodman, aged 20, and Michael Schwerner, 24, were murdered near Philadelphia in Neshoba County, Mississippi. They'd been working to register black voters in Mississippi during Freedom Summer and had gone to investigate the burning of a black church. They were arrested by the police on trumped-up charges, imprisoned for several hours, and then released after dark into the hands of the Ku Klux Klan, who beat and murdered them. 
It was later proven in court that a conspiracy existed between members of Neshoba County's law enforcement and the KKK to kill them. The FBI arrested 18 men in October 1964, but state prosecutors refused to try the case, claiming lack of evidence. The federal government then stepped in and the FBI arrested 18 in connection with the killings. In 1967, seven men were convicted on federal conspiracy charges and given sentences of three to ten years, but none served more than six. No one was tried on the charge of murder. Another eight defendants were acquitted by their all-white juries, and another three ended in mistrials. One of those mistrials freed Edgar Ray Killen, known as Preacher, believed to be the ringleader after the jury in his case was deadlocked by one member who said that she couldn't bear to convict a preacher. On January the 7th, 2005, four decades after the crime, Edgar A. Killen, then aged 80, was charged with three counts of murder. He was accused of orchestrating the killings and assembling the mob that killed the three men. On June the 21st that year, the 41st anniversary of the murders, Killen was convicted on three counts of manslaughter, a lesser charge. He received the maximum sentence 60 years in prison. The grand jury declined to call for the arrest of the seven other living members of the original group of 18 suspects arrested in 1967. Nowadays, we are all fully aware of the concept that freedom of speech is a cherished right. But just how far should that right extend? For many, comedian Lenny Bruce stepped way beyond any reasonable interpretation of free speech. That belief developed into the costliest and almost certainly the most controversial obscenity trial in American history. On April 1st, 1964, two plainclothes New York City police officers arrived at the Café O'Gogo, the Greenwich Village coffee house, and here, mixing in amongst the other audience members, they sat and watched the comedian Lenny Bruce do his thing. Typical of Bruce's stand-up routine, it was funny, scatological, full to the brim with swear words, and acerbically accurate. Untypically, the show was recorded for posterity, not by Bruce or some big-name record label keen to put out his work to those who'd not seen him perform live, but recorded via a concealed wiretap worn by one of the police officers. Two nights later, April 3rd, just before he was due to go on stage, Bruce was arrested and charged with using obscene language. Also arrested was the club owner, Howard Solomon. Bruce had several times been cited for obscenity and twice convicted so he was no stranger to controversy. But this was easily his highest profile arrest yet. But, even after posting bail, he continued to perform at the club for a further four nights. This led to him being arrested again, not only with Solomon, but with Solomon's wife as well. All three were charged with obscenity. 
Just days before their trial commenced, the statement signed by more than 100 prominent members of the arts community was issued to the media. In it, the signatories pledged support for the beleaguered Bruce, but more especially for the principle of free speech. The final witness to testify was Herbert S. Roon, an inspector with the New York City Department of Licenses. He'd watched Bruce perform and had secretly jotted down numerous notes. The defence objected to these being read out in court, but having been overruled, Roon continued to read out an edited version of Bruce's act. But by doing this, he only succeeded in highlighting the language used and not the context. Rune would also swear under oath that on stage, Lenny Bruce had fondled the microphone in an obvious and suggestive manner, an accusation bitterly denied by the defence. Patrolman Robert Lane and his partner William O'Neill, the officers who had recorded the show that evening, reiterated the allegation, and also when the tape recording was played back in court, sometimes there'd be parts that were inaudible. With only tape noise, hisses or scratches in places, these were substituted by the prosecution's transcript, which proved to be far more damaging than the original performance. Eventually, after a couple of adjournments, the court reconvened on November the 4th. Judge Myrtle delivered the verdict. The court finds the defendants Lenny Bruce and Howard Solomon guilty. The court, by unanimous vote, finds the defendant Ella Solomon not guilty. Sentencing was deferred until December 21st, 1964, at which time Bruce received four months imprisonment. Solomon was fined. The decision completely unhinged Lenny Bruce, who became obsessed with appellate litigation. And finally, on August the 3rd, 1966, he was found dead at his home in Hollywood, a hypodermic syringe by his side. Autopsy verdict, accidental death. In Bluebird, Donald Campbell has set a new world record, and this was the scene at Lake Eyre when they were all set for the attempt. Two million pounds or more has gone into the jet-powered car and the preparations, and 70 British firms have contributed to the cost. But Lake Eyre proved difficult. Until the surface was levelled and dry, it would have been suicidal to attack the record. At last everything's okay, and the man with the unique combination of courage, patience and determination for the attempt receives the mascot from his wife, Tonya. It's a tense moment, but Donald Campbell has known many like it. The huge engine starts up. that two runs have to be made, one each way along the measured mile. To get up speed and slow down afterwards entails a run of about 15 miles. The first run was successful. Now Campbell hurtles over the salt flats in the reverse direction. To the joy of everybody, a new record was set at 403.1 miles an hour. Up 
It seems almost incredible that back in 1961, despite NASA astronauts only spending a total of just 15 minutes in space, the agency was tasked with sending a man to the moon by the end of the decade. It would take nearly the entire decade to achieve this, and along the way, many hurdles would have to be overcome. Ranger 7 was the first American spacecraft to image the moon's surface from close up. Along with Rangers 8 and 9, its pictures helped the United States plan the excursions for the Apollo program, which saw astronauts land on the moon between 1969 and 1972. The spacecraft came a very early time in space exploration, when engineers were still learning the fundamentals about how to keep a machine working in space. As such, Ranger 7 followed six failed missions in its own program over several years. It made these first pictures seem extra special. On July the 31st, the first pictures, which, though primitive by today's standards, showed high-resolution views of craters and other features on the moon. Further pictures taken with Rangers 8 and 9, along with landings from the Surveyor program, helped scientists confirm it would be safe to send astronauts to the surface. July the 6th would see the premiere of A Hard Day's Night in Liverpool. Well, welcome home, boys. Thank What's you. it feel like to come back to a big civic reception like this? Great, <laughs> Very nice. Did you ever imagine that this day was coming? Never, never like days? this. I mean, you know, we used to come here spotting the plane numbers and things. I never, <laughs> I, I never imagined, you know, we'd come back to this. <laughs> Well, now, you've all made a fortune. Have you got any future ambition in mind? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't want to borrow any, John. Have you got any future in mind now? Any other ambitions? No, no, I'd like to make uh, more films, I think. We'd all like to do that, because it's good fun, you know. It's hard work, but you can have a good laugh in films. What about you, Ringo? Same, I enjoy films. You do? Well, I think, you know, all of us want to do sort of... Uh, some, a good film, you know, one that we all think's good, and make more good records. Don't you think or, this one's any good? Well, then? It's, it's okay, you know what I mean. But uh, make good records. Not I as think. good as James Bond, though, is it? Oh, not <laughs> as good as James Bond. You fancy yourselves as actors, then, do you? No, no, no definitely not. You. <laughs> but I mean, but we enjoyed making the last film. And especially with the director, the director was great, you see, and it made it much easier for us. None of us rate ourselves as actors, but, you know, it's a good laugh and we enjoy doing it. So we'd like to make a couple more. Jolly good. Uh, now, it's about seven months since you were in Liverpool last, appearing. Yeah. And some of the fans have been saying that, you know, they feel that you've deserted them. What do you feel well, about mainly that? mainly the ones that never came to us. The people that are moaning about us not being here are people that never even came to see us when we were here. Some you know, we'd about, we could count on our fingers that 
the original fans we had here, the ones that really followed us. And most of them gave up being teenagers anyway. They're all sort of settled in in different things. The ones that are moaning never probably came to see us about once the only thing or is after that, we'd made records. The only thing is that we've got to do a lot from London because a lot of the TV shows are down in London. You know, and so we're forced to do a lot down in London. I mean, it's like someone said the other day, why doesn't Harry Seacombe go to Cardiff? You know, he never does, but no one ever moans about Harry never going to Cardiff. You know what I mean? Doesn't so he, he go now, He Harry? doesn't go back to Cardiff very often. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> round, round, get around, I get around, yeah, get around, round, round, I get around, I get around. And so to August 1964, and on the 2nd, police were flown into Hastings to break up clashes between mods and rockers on the seafront. On the 16th in France, 13 children died when their coach crashed over a ravine in the St Bernard Pass. And on the 21st, three women were found guilty of indecency for wearing topless dresses in public. Tensions in Rhodesia escalated throughout August when on the 3rd in northern Rhodesia, 150 people were reported to have been massacred by Lumpur Church sect members. And on the 25th, also in northern Rhodesia, Kenneth Kawunda was elected president-elect of Zambia. 1964 was of course an Olympic year, and on the 18th in Switzerland, South Africa were banned from the competition for their apartheid policies. September the 3rd saw Robert Kennedy resigning as Attorney General in order to run for the Senate. And on the 4th, the Queen officially opened Europe's longest suspension bridge, linking Edinburgh to Perth across the River Forth. Tens of thousands of spectators turned up to watch the Royal Cavalcade slowly cross the 3,300 foot central span of the bridge. There were soldiers of lowland regiments from the south who linked up symbolically with a Highland Brigade from the north to mark the opening of the new crossing, which cut off more than an hour off the journey time by road. At the time, the fourth road bridge was the fourth longest in the world was succeeded by the Tagus in Portugal, which was 23 feet longer when it opened in 1967. 
Sir Alec Douglas Hume announced the general election on the 15th of October, and almost immediately opposition leader Harold Wilson declared that the Labour Party was determined to end 13 wasted years under the Tories. Populist Wilson seemed to reflect the public mood for change with the Conservative leader, Sir Alec Douglas Hume, widely perceived as a distant, awkward aristocrat. By the time of the 1964 general election, the Conservative Party had been in power for 13 years. Since Prime Minister Harold Macmillan's election victory in 1959, Conservative fortunes had plummeted. The buoyant economy that led to Macmillan's election was faltering by 1961, The following year, in a bid to restore his popularity, Macmillan sacked seven members of his cabinet in a move dubbed the Night of the Long Knives. It was a ploy that failed. The government ran into further problems when Britain's application to join the common market was rejected by the French president, Charles de Gaulle. Scandal added to the government's woes when John Profumo, the Minister for War, was forced to resign after he admitted lying to Parliament over his involvement with the call girl, Christine Keeler. The government looked tired, embattled and increasingly out of step with the public mood. In 1964, Macmillan, who'd hoped to lead the Tories into the next election, resigned the premiership due to ill health. When the Conservative chose the aristocratic Sir Alec Douglas Hume as their new leader, it was a gift for Labour. Harold Wilson had been elected Labour leader following the unexpected and untimely death of Hugh Gateskill in 1962. A pragmatic politician, Wilson defeated George Brown for the party leadership and soon became a popular and charismatic leader. He contrasted favourably with Douglas Hume, who appeared removed both from the Britain inhabited by the majority of the British people and to some extent the modern world itself. As the two leaders began sparring with each other in the run-up to the election, it became clear that Douglas Hume was simply unable to keep up with Wilson. Sir Alec had spent most of his political career in the House of Lords and was not used to the cut and thrust of political debate. Douglas Hume showed the depth of his inexperience when he remarked casually that he used matchsticks to help him understand economic problems. In contrast, Wilson was the academic high flyer. When Attlee brought him into the post-war cabinet, he was the youngest man to be appointed a minister since Pitt the Younger. When it came to problem solving, Wilson was more familiar with slide rules than matchsticks. Despite Wilson's success as party leader, particularly in his skillful exploitation of the Profumo affair, Labour's lead in the opinion polls was slowly eroded as the election drew closer. The Tory revival was helped by Chancellor Reginald Maudling's run-for-growth pre-election budget. With the two main parties running neck and neck as the election was called, the result hung on a knife edge. On the day, Labour won by the narrowest of margins. 
Labour took 317 seats, giving them a majority of just four, the smallest since 1847. Although Labour enjoyed a 3.5% swing from the Conservatives, their share of the vote did not actually increase. However, the Tory turnout was 2 million down on 1959. The swing in the regions was somewhat uneven. Although the Tories held up in the Midlands, they saw the capital and the south-east move Labour's way. The Liberals did well in Scotland and doubled their vote for the second successive election, although they won just nine seats. Labour's victory was largely put down to the popular and populist leadership of Harold Wilson, which had done much to boost Labour morale in the run-up to the election. Wilson rallied the Labour vote and benefited from the disillusionment of Conservative voters, many of whom stayed at home on polling day. Sir Alex's lack of charisma was blamed for the Tory defeat. Even so, after 13 years in power, winning a fourth term in office was always going to be a difficult task. The Conservative campaign was also criticised for not inspiring the faithful and for failing to take Labour to task over their policy commitments. The Chancellor, Reginald Maudling, was blamed for failing to cost Labour's policy proposals fast enough. When he released the frightening price tag of £900 million, it became too late to have any influence on the result. Labour was back in power for the first time since 1951, but only just. With the majority of four, Wilson would be unable to submit any major pieces of legislation to the House. A second election held to enable Wilson to secure a mandate was just around the corner. And it was during the BBC's coverage of the general election that Richard Dimbleby announced that China had tested its first atomic bomb. There is the result of this election, which we've had to wait on Hello, for yes. so long. Oh, result we've had to wait for so long. The closest um, results in I just interrupt the programme briefly, ladies and gentlemen, not to startle you too much, to tell you that I've just been told that China has exploded an atomic bomb. Everything's happening today, isn't it? <laughs> The 15th of September, the Daily Herald newspaper finally ended publication and was replaced by The Sun. On the 28th, a survey revealed that Radio Caroline had more listeners than BBC Radio. And on the 29th, in India, a thousand people were feared dead after a reservoir burst its banks.
and towards the end of September in the USA. Almost exactly 10 months after the fateful November 22nd, the seven members of the Warren Commission, headed by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, come to the White House to give to the President the results of their painstaking investigation into the determinable facts of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. For President Johnson's instruction to the Commission was to satisfy itself that the truth is known so far as it can be discovered. The report's 300,000 words trace the facts and, without prejudging, the implications of that day that started so brightly and ended so blackly at high noon on the streets of Dallas. Through questioning of every possible witness, restaging of the events of the morning drive, the commission reports that the fatal shots that entered President Kennedy's head and throat were fired by Lee Harvey Oswald from the Texas School Book Depository, acting solely by himself, and that there was no conspiracy, either foreign or domestic. Following the details of the crowded half hour between the time the president was shot and declared dead, the commission finds some inadequacies in security measures that might have saved the president's life had there been more liaison between the FBI and the Secret Service. In the circumstances surrounding the shooting of Oswald two days later, it found the Dallas police and the press sharing responsibility for the breakdown of law enforcement. For although these pictures showing the prisoner being led through the basement of the Dallas police headquarters and the shooting of Oswald by Jack Ruby made journalistic history, the confusion surrounding them made that killing possible and ended forever any chance of obtaining any evidence from Lee Harvey Oswald. The published report is eagerly sought after by everyday citizens. Its impact abroad and in the government is immediate. Congressional steps are to follow its recommendations for the stronger protection of presidents. And for the historians, the poets, and the dramatists of the future, it will illuminate, if never precisely solve, the mystery and tragedy that surround the death of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. When you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go downtown. When you've got worries, all the noise and the hurry seems to help, I know. Downtown, just listen to the music of the traffic in the city. Linger on the sidewalk where the neon signs are pretty. How can you lose? The lights are much brighter there. You can't forget all your troubles, forget all your cares, so go downtown. Your problems surround you There are movie shows Downtown Maybe you know Some little places to go to Where they never close Downtown Just listen to the rhythm Of a gentle bossing over You'll be dancing with them too Before the night is over Happy again The lights are much brighter there You can't forget During the nights of October 3rd and 4th, 1964, the largest mass escape of East Berlin was conducted with 57 people managing to escape through a tunnel underneath an apartment block in Strelitzer Strasse. The tunnel itself was 2 feet high and 3 feet wide, 
and the people making the leap could not bring any baggage or belongings with them, only their papers. They came out on Bernaustrasse, underneath a disused bakery in West Berlin. On the second night, two men came with a group of border guards and gunfire broke out. One of the East German border guards, Egon Schultz, was killed after an escape helper, Christian Zobel, opened fire and shot him. He was then hit by friendly fire from another guard and fatally wounded. And despite all of this, it was the most successful tunnel escape in history. So maybe I'll see you there We can forget all our troubles Forget all our cares So go downtown Things will be great when you're downtown Don't wait a minute more Downtown Everything's waiting for you On the 15th of October, Nikita Khrushchev unexpectedly stepped down as the leader of the Soviet Union. Our lips shouldn't touch. Move over, darling. I like it too much. Move over, darling. That gleam in your eyes is no big surprise anymore. Cause you fooled me before. The official Soviet news agency TASS announced that a plenary meeting of the Communist Party Central Committee had accepted Mr Khrushchev's request to depart in view of his advanced age and the deterioration of his health. Mr Khrushchev, who was 70, took over as first secretary of the Central Committee soon after the death of Stalin. He had held the role of both party leader and prime minister since 1958. Both of these posts were then divided, with 57-year-old Leonid Brezhnev heading the Soviet Communist Party, while 60-year-old Alexei Kosygin took the role of Prime Minister. The news initially came as a shock to Soviet diplomats in London, who were unaware that their leader might be unwell. For the Western leaders, his brash and extrovert sense of humour was a refreshing change from the stern image of previous Soviet public figures, and he was well known for his courting of socialist parties abroad, and his encouragement of cultural exchanges. But famously, his temper sometimes got the better of him, such as the time he famously hit the table with his shoe during a United Nations debate in 1960. And he was quick to warn of the USSR's nuclear weapons capability in his speeches in the international arena. And his leadership, of course, will also be remembered for bringing the world close to nuclear war by placing Soviet nuclear missiles in Cuba during the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. Bye. 
On the 22nd of October, Jean-Paul Sartre rejected the Nobel Prize, saying that it would reduce the impact of his writing. And on the 31st, London's Windmill Theatre, famous for its glamorous striptease shows and the proud slogan, We Never Close, referring to the fact that it stayed open throughout the Blitz, actually closed its doors. Here's the article from the Evening News, written by Bill Bourne. The We Never Close Theatre, the Windmill, which has been producing glamorous shows for 32 years, will give its last live performance on October the 31st. Next day, it will open as a cinema. The news was broken to the windmill cast and staffed today by Miss Sheila Van Dam. The windmill is being taken over by the Compton Group, the film production and distribution organisation. Today was a day of nostalgia for the stars who had given their show business start at the windmill. Stars like Jimmy Edwards, Peter Sellers and Gene Kent. At the theatre this afternoon there was a forced cheerfulness among the pretty girls tapping their way up the wooden spiral staircase between the stage door and the dressing rooms. And as he watched them going past his stage door, Mr Ben Fuller, stage doorkeeper for 31 years, had tears in his eyes. At the front of the theatre, behind the fine mesh grill of her cash box, sat Mrs Constance Drummond in the position she's occupied for the past 20 years. She said, My darling, I feel very, very upset. We've always been so happy here because we've had a wonderful governor and I can't imagine what life would be like not coming here day after day. She's not there. And in the world of sport this year. The 1964 FA Cup Final took place on the 2nd of May at Wembley Stadium and was contested between West Ham United and Preston North End. West Ham, captained by Bobby Moore and managed by Ron Greenwood, won the match 3-2 to win the FA Cup for the first time. 2nd Division Preston led twice through Doug Holden and Alex Dawson respectively, with John Sissons and Jeff Hurst equalising for West Ham. Ronnie Boyce then scored the winner for the London club in the 90th minute. Preston's Howard Kendall became the youngest player to play in a Wembley FA Cup final, aged just 17 years, 345 days. He retained this record until 1980 when Paul Allen played in that year's final for West Ham, at the age of 17 years, 256 days. At Wimbledon this year, in an All-Australian Men's Seniors final, Roy Emerson defeated Fred Stoll 6-1-12-10-4-6-6-3. In the women's singles, Maria Bueno defeated another Australian Margaret Smith 6-4-7-9-6-3. And the 110th boat race took place on the 28th of March this year. The Oxford crew was the heaviest in boat rate history and the race was won by Cambridge by 6.5 lengths. The victory was Cambridge's 61st in the contest, taking the overall score to 61-48. 
1964 Grand National was the 118th renewal of the Grand National horse race that took place at Aintree this year on the 21st of March. 33 horses ran and the race was won narrowly by the American-owned 12-year-old Team Spirit at odds of 18 to 1. It was ridden by jockey Willie Robinson and trained by Fulker Walwyn. The journalist and broadcaster Nancy Spain and her partner, the magazine editor Joan Werner Laurie, were among five people killed when their light aircraft crashed near the racecourse on the day of the race which they were travelling to attend. And Santa Claus, the British-bred Irish-trained thoroughbred racehorse and sire, won the Irish 2000 Guineas, the Epsom Derby and the Irish Derby. His performance is earning him the title of British Horse of the Year. The 1964 World Series pitted the National League champion St. Louis Cardinals against the American League champion New York Yankees, with the Cardinals prevailing in the best of seven games. St. Louis won their seventh World Championship, while the Yankees, who had appeared in 14 of 16 World Series since 1949, did not play in the series again until 1976. In an unusual twist, the Yankees fired Yogi Berra after the series ended, replacing him with Johnny Keane, who had resigned from the Cardinals after the series. His job had been threatened by Cardinals management, and it was unexpectedly saved by the Cardinals' dramatic pennant drive. This was also the last World Series that matched the Yankees up against the Cardinals. In the previous four meetings, each team had won twice, the Yankees winning in 1928 and 1943, and the Cardinals in 1926 and 1942. Back to the beginning of the year, January the 29th and the 9th Winter Olympics opened at Innsbruck. The eyes of 37 nations are focused on Innsbruck and the 9th Winter Olympic Games. The medieval atmosphere of the village is a babble of tongues, but a policeman named Rudolf Ivkovich helps out in 10 languages. If you go, if you go this way, are you with the car here? Yes. You may go with your car directly this way and then turn left. No, we did not Yakolavko. We get in this car all the time. First, there is the traditional Olympic pomp and pageantry, all of the symbolism of the games that are traced back to the Greeks who founded them in 776. Russians take an early lead in the international competition as they win the first gold medal in the pair's figure skating. Oleg Podopopov and Ludmila Belosova glide to the title with intricate maneuvers that win the nod from five out of nine judges. This is the first time that the Soviet Union has taken a gold medal in figure skating.
husband and wife pair are a couple of happy champs. Then it's Austria's turn to dominate an event. Egon Zimmermann sweeps down the Pachakofel course in the men's downhill event. He was highly favored, and he quickly proves to his fans that they have nothing to fear. He's Grease Lightning. Zimmermann clips five seconds from the course record as he shows his heels to the field. Now it's Great Britain that takes center stage. Tony Nash and Robin Dixon are the two-man bobsled team representing a nation that has won only two gold medals in the history of the Winter Olympics. They're out to increase that number, and they do, at speeds that hit better than 60 miles an hour. Twisting and zooming through the 14 turns of the plunging bobsled run, they go roaring into the finish, 12 hundredths of a second faster than the Italian team. United States hopes ride high on Gene Sobert in the woman's slalom. The 21-year-old Oregon State University co-ed puts on a fine performance that has the international crowd rooting her on. She's up against some stiff competition, but she displays some fine forms and comes across the finish in nice time. Then comes Christine Goetschel, representing France. In the slalom, she is competing against a field of 21 that includes her own sister, Marielle. It was Marielle who was favored to win, but this is the way that Christine noses her out by a split second. The event turned out to be a sister act. Christine first, Marielle second. Placing third was Miss Silbert to win the first medal, a bronze awarded Uncle Sam. The Goetschel sisters proved to be the fastest family on skis at the ninth Winter Olympics. February the 25th and Cassius Clay took on Sonny Liston. Dismissed as a no-hope braggart before the fight which he began as the 7-1 underdog, Cassius Clay pulled off one of boxing's greatest surprises by beating the apparently invincible Sonny Liston to take the heavyweight championship of the world. The weigh-in for the fight had degenerated into a farce with Clay whipping himself into a frenzy, screaming insults at the brooding impassive champion, an exhibition which brought him a heavy fine, by which he seemed unimpressed. Once the fight began, Clay's speed around the ring and his swift counter-punching clearly disconcerted Liston, but the Miami Beach audience was stunned into silence when the champion, complaining of a badly injured shoulder, refused to come out to fight the seventh round. I love you because you 
May the 24th, an unpopular, not to mention tragic, decision by a referee at the Argentina versus Peru match sparked a riot that left at least 135 people dead and over 500 injured when the crowd panic led to a stampede. The trouble started when, with Argentina a goal ahead, Peru's equaliser was disallowed. Two fans descended to the pitch and assaulted the referee who stopped play with two minutes to go. Furious Peruvian supporters broke up Lima Stadium before going on an arson and looting spree. Police turned tear gas and dogs into the mob to restore order. I love you because my heart is lighter Every time I'm walking On June the 21st, John White, Tottenham Hotspur's international inside right, was killed by a lightning strike at the age of 27 while sheltering under a tree during a thunderstorm at Cruise Hill Golf Course in Enfield. But of course, the biggest sporting event, the Games of the 18th Olympiad, or the 1964 Olympic Games, took place in October this year. dressed in her holiday best for the opening of the 18th Modern Olympics, the first to be held in the Far East. At the National Stadium, there's a capacity crowd of 75,000 present for the opening ceremonies that precede 20 different sports events among athletes from 94 nations. The United States contingent of 330 men and girls is warmly applauded, and the male members are singled out by their jaunty western hats. Russians follow the U.S. team, their arch-rivals in Olympic competition. There are 5,541 entrants in this year's games, a near record. As the host nation, the Japanese enter last. The Japanese have spent $2 billion to welcome their guests, and not a taxpayer has complained out loud. 
And the teams line up on the infield as Emperor Hirohito declares the games officially open. As the 124th Emperor of Japan welcomes everyone to the Olympiad, the ringed flag is raised. Then the spotlight shifts to Yoshinori Sakai, who circles the track carrying the torch that was lit at the Olympic site in Greece and drawn here by a relay of thousands of runners. He mounts 154 steps to the pedestal that holds the Olympic cauldron. Sakai was born 40 miles from Hiroshima on the day the U.S. dropped the atomic bomb. He might stand as a symbol of peace among nations through friendly competition, just as the roaring Olympic flame brightens international horizons every four years. 8,000 pigeons are released to blacken the sky in majestic flight. May all nations find greater understanding through sports. Just walking down the street singing Tapping her fingers and shuffling her feet singing She looked good, she looked fine She looked good, she looked fine And I nearly lost my mind Before I knew it, she was walking next to me singing In my hand, just as natural as can be singing. We walk on to my door. We walk on to my door. Then we kissed a little more. November the 3rd, 1964, Lyndon B. Johnson was elected President of the United States, defeating the hardline Republican Senator Barry Goldwater of Arizona by an overwhelming majority. The man who had taken over the presidency late the year before after the assassination of President Kennedy got the largest popular majority in US history, greater than Franklin D. Roosevelt's landslide victory of 1936. His Democrats won 44 states in the District of Columbia with 486 votes. Senator Goldwater took just six states with 52 electoral votes. Democrats took 293 of the 435 seats in the House of Representatives and the Republicans won 139, taking 11 from the Democrats, mostly in the South. Electronic analysis of results at the time showed a groundswell of support for the President from young blacks voting for the first time since the Civil Rights Act was passed. Democrats won 27 of the 35 seats in the Senate, among them two of the late President Kennedy's brothers, Robert and Edward. Well, I'm hurt. I'm hurt. She's mine. She's She's mine, winning bells are gonna chime Oh, 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 yeah Do what did it, did it, dum, did it, do We'll sing it to me Do what did it, did it, dum, did it, do Do what did it, did it, dum, did it, do 
Still in November this year, our mother and daughter teamed up when Judy Garland and Liza Minnelli gave a series of concerts at the London Palladium, a recording of which resulted in a worldwide best-selling album the following year. Majesty, Your Royal Highness, Mr. President, Excellences, ladies and gentlemen, I accept the Nobel Prize for Peace at a moment when 22 million Negroes of the United States 
are engaged in a creative battle to end the long night of racial injustice. I accept this award on behalf of a civil rights movement which is moving with determination and a majestic scorn for risk and danger to establish a reign of freedom and a rule of justice. I refuse to accept the view that mankind is so tragically bound to the starless midnight of racism and war that the bright daybreak of peace and brotherhood can never become a reality. I refuse to accept the cynical notion that nation after nation must spiral down a militaristic stairway into the hell of nuclear annihilation. I believe that un unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. On the 12th of December, Kenya became a republic and the first steps towards the end of the death penalty in the UK were taken when the Murder Act 1965, also known as the Abolition of the Death Penalty Act, began its passage through Parliament before finally becoming law the following year. On television, The Avengers, starring Patrick McNee as John Steed and Diana Rigg as Emma Peel, was proving to be incredibly popular. But there was another show that dominated news headlines towards the end of the year. Nineteen sixty four was the year of the mania. With the release of the third James Bond movie, Goldfinger, Bond Mania was at its peak. The Beatles, of course, leading the British invasion, introduced us to the now common term, Beatlemania. But as well as the Avengers, TV viewers were gripped by a science fiction show that had first hit the airwaves the year before, and by the end of this year, a new mania had been born. Doctor Who was first broadcast in November the year before, with the Daleks taking centre stage for his second televised adventure. They proved to be so popular that by the end of February 1964, plans were already in place to bring them back. But before they returned to the small screen, the Daleks were making appearances, events and photo opportunities all around the country. Two of the original Dalek props were donated to the Dr. Bernardo's children's charity, generating a huge publicity buzz with photos in most of the national newspapers. Soon after this, Daleks were seen opening village fates, air shows and even major exhibitions at Olympia. Models, toys, costumes, lunchboxes and t-shirts soon appeared in the shops. Dalek mania was proving to be as big a phenomena as bomb mania and beetle mania. With filming for the second Dalek story due to take place in the autumn, publicity was ramped up even further with photo shoots at Madame Tussauds and Westminster Bridge. The first part of the new Dalek story aired on the 21st of November 1964, with the final episode being broadcast on Boxing Day. 
and it's fair to say that by that Christmas, the Daleks were everywhere. They were appearing in sitcoms, variety programmes such as the Black and White Minstrel Show, and Dalek props were touring the country, attracting crowds in their thousands. All of this, coupled with the release of a pop single entitled I Want to Spend Christmas with a Dalek, generated a buzz and a publicity for a TV show that was unprecedented. It would of course continue, not only with the TV show, but two big screen adventures starring Peter Cushing as the Doctor. And even now, 60 years later, the Daleks are still appearing in new adventures on our TV screens, as we all still watch from behind the sofa. This year, we said goodbye to singers Jim Reeves and Sam Cooke, the author Ian Fleming, and actors Peter Lorre, Harpo Marx and Alan Ladd. The 36 Academy Awards honouring the best film for 1963 were held on April 13th, 1964 at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium in Santa Monica, California. This year, they were hosted by Jack Lemmon. Best Picture winner Tom Jones became the only film in history to garner three Best Supporting Actress nominations. It also tied the Oscar record of five unsuccessful acting nominations set by Peyton Place at the 30th Academy Awards. This year's winner for Best Actress category was unique. Although playing a supporting role and having a relatively small amount on the screen, Patricia Neal won the Best Actress category for her role in HUD. The movie also won for Best Supporting Actor for Melvin Douglas and Best Cinematography in Black and White. It was the second and to date the last film to win two acting awards without being nominated for Best Picture, the other being The Miracle Worker. At the age of 71, Margaret Rutherford set a then-record as the oldest winner for Best Supporting Actress, a year after Patty Duke set a then-record as the youngest ever winner. Rutherford was also only the second Oscar winner over the age of 70 at the time of a win. The other was Edmund Gwen, as well as becoming the last woman born in the 19th century to win. This was the only time in Academy history that all Best Supporting Actress nominees were born outside the United States. Sidney Poitier became the first black actor to win Best Actor, and An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge was the first Oscar-winning film to have aired on network television prior to the ceremony. Best Sound Effects was also introduced this year with its Mad 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 World winning the award. As for movies released this year, well there's no doubt 1964 was a little bit special. There was Doctor Strangelove, Mary Poppins' My Fair Lady and Goldfinger. There was A Hard Day's Night, Marnie and Zorba the Greek. But in January this year, a movie received its world premiere in London. 
Regarded by many as one of the finest British movies ever made, it was produced by and starred Stanley Baker. Also starring Jack Hawkins, it was directed by Cy Enfield, with music by John Barry, and in his first major screen role, Mr Michael Caine. Join me next time as I tell the story of the making of Zulu. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at RV underscore podcast. Join our Facebook group at Facebook forward slash groups forward slash Rainbow Valley podcast. Or send us your thoughts and your feedback to rainbowvalleypod at gmail.com. This has been a Stinking Paws production. Thanks for listening. <laughs>